Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with the Middle East program's Will Todman to break down his new report just released yesterday, Powering Recovery. Then, John, Lubna, and I continue the conversation to dive into the Libya chapter, which Lubna authored, and how donors should use Will's report to alter their strategy in conflict-affected areas in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Will Todman is a fellow here in the Middle East program. You have heard him on Babel before as a participant. Now he's a guest. He joined CSS in 2016. He's focused on aid, sustainability, and displacement in the Middle East with an emphasis on Levant. And he's done field research in nine different countries, including for this report. Will, welcome to Babel. Thanks so much for having me, John. So you have a new report out. What's it about? What's it called? It's called Powering Recovery, Reform, Reconstruction, and Renewables in Conflict-Affected States in the Arab World. It's a mouthful. And it is a mouthful. Yeah, maybe we should work on that. <laughs> it's about what international actors can do to support the more reliable and affordable provision of electricity in conflict-affected states. So these aren't just states that are experiencing active conflict, but those where conflict dynamics continue even after fighting has stopped. And so Lebanon and Iraq are countries that fit that category. And then I also looked at Yemen, and my colleague Lubna Youssef looked at Libya as well. How did you hit on this idea of renewable energy in conflict-affected states? So when I lived in Lebanon, I experienced power cuts every day, as all Lebanese do. There were rolling power cuts for three hours every day for decades after the end of the civil war. And I had heard of this mythical place called Zahle, which is not actually a mythical place. It's a city in the Bekaa Valley where they had 24-7 electricity at the time. And something stuck with me about this one town. How did some people manage to produce their own electricity when the rest of the country suffered from three hours or more of power cuts per day? Now, the situation in Lebanon has got times worse now. Most Lebanese get a maximum of two hours of power from the state. But there are examples of people who have managed to come together at the community level and produce their own electricity. So often these systems integrate renewables to some degree. And part of the reason for that is that renewables are now as affordable as traditional methods of generating electricity using diesel, because diesel costs go up in conflict-affected environments. So this got me thinking, if local people are taking matters into their own hands and managing to produce more reliable cheaper, cleaner electricity, then shouldn't we be learning from that? Shouldn't we be looking into what factors allowed them to navigate the really complex political and economic environments and see if there are ways of scaling that up? And so I zoomed out and went beyond Lebanon and looked at Iraq, Yemen, and Libya, as I said, and really tried to focus on 
what role international actors have to reconstruct electricity and how learning from local examples might require a different approach altogether. So when you have this situation where there's only two hours of electricity provided by the state every day, how are people living? Where are people getting electricity from? For people who can afford it, there are a whole network of private electricity providers, often at the neighborhood level. So these are commonly neighborhood generators. You can have a subscription to these services and they fill in the gaps, or theoretically they fill in the gaps when there's no power from the state. The problem is it's really expensive. And particularly as crises really tighten and the situation gets much worse, fuel gets more expensive. So as part of the research, I spoke to people in rural parts of the Bakar Valley in Lebanon, and they can't afford to pay their generators anymore. They can't afford to keep their food cool. They can't afford to turn the lights on. Just charging a mobile phone costs the equivalent of an entire a month salary from a, a soldier, for example, who is paid by the state. So tiny amounts of electricity are absolutely extortionate. And quite frankly, it is still something of a mystery to me how people get by in the 21st century in those conditions. But of course, it exacerbates all the other humanitarian crises. If you don't have electricity, it cripples local economies. It really undermines education and healthcare systems as well. I mean, you can't have lights on in schools. You can't print papers for students. You can't operate fans in clinics. It has absolutely dire humanitarian consequences. But you had also talked in the report about how in all of these countries with broken electrical systems, there are people who are benefiting from broken electrical systems. I think this is the core of the problem, that uneven electricity provision actually benefits some people. If you have really unreliable electricity and you are in a position of power to be able to determine who gets electricity and who doesn't get it, then you can provide preferential access to constituents to secure their loyalty. You can help build coalitions by providing it to members of the private sector who might be a helpful source of support. But you can also then undermine your rivals. You can also deliberately limit electricity to other rival groups. And so it becomes a weapon of war. But it's not only about these political elites providing some electricity to certain people and, and denying it from others. It's also about the fact that they benefit from these informal systems that crop up. So the generator owners that I talked about very often have close ties to local political leaders and then national political leaders as well. So these political leaders get a cut of their proceeds to allow these generators to have a monopoly in a given area. And so these networks of graft are really entrenched in a lot of these situations. It's not just Lebanon, it's in Iraq, certainly as well, and to a degree in, in Libya, where politicians actually make money from electricity crises. So the United States put a lot of money into reconstructing Iraq. Why was the United States not able to move beyond a system that seems to reward both political graft and corruption, but also poor electricity. I would argue that they fundamentally sort of underestimated the degree to which powerful actors 
have an incentive to ensure that some of these projects that they funded fail and that they sort of failed to understand the interests of these actors in pushing for certain interventions over others. So you said that the US spent billions of dollars, more than $5 billion in Iraq on electricity infrastructure. And a lot of this was for major multi-million dollar power stations, which are an easier way for them to operate. They can work out a single contract they have to engage with fewer people. And theoretically, the impact of these really big power stations is huge. They can provide electricity to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in one single project. The problem, though, especially if you're in an area which endures ongoing fragility, is that those very big centralized pieces of infrastructure then become attractive targets. A prominent example of this was the Beji power station in Iraq, which had just opened. It was built by Siemens to the north of Baghdad, and ISIS destroyed it very soon after it went online. This was a waste of of hundreds of millions of dollars gone in one fell swoop. So I would argue that that this approach that donors have advanced creates really serious fragilities and really serious single points of failure in the system that then have devastating consequences. So what are the advantages of renewable systems and where do renewable systems just not work in post-conflict environments? So there are different types of renewable systems. Some are really major pieces of infrastructure like utility scale wind farms or solar farms. And they're better for the environment, they're getting cost competitive with major hydrocarbon-fueled power stations, but they're not appropriate for lots of environments because donors are wary about funding these massive projects when fighting is ongoing. For the reasons that I just mentioned, it could get destroyed. But what I think makes renewables different is that you can have distributed renewable systems. And what this means is you have a decentralized system where there are much smaller solar farms, which are at the community level. And there are loads of advantages of these for conflict-affected environment. They are much smaller, so it means if they are destroyed, the impact is going to be more isolated and fewer people suffer the the consequences of that. It actually reduces losses as well because the power is produced closer to where it's consumed. So the targets for malign actors to attack are smaller and that reduces technical losses as well. But it also, very importantly, reduces the reliance on regular fuel imports. And this is really important because for hydrocarbon-fueled power stations, you constantly need fuel to be operating these systems. But during conflicts, it can be really difficult to import the fuel and then to get it to these stations. So you don't need that anymore. And then, of course, there are the environmental benefits. There's the health benefit. There are less toxic fumes. And what I argue is that by building these systems, donors can actually act a lot earlier. They can install these systems even while fighting is ongoing in other parts of the country. We've seen this in Yemen. Just less than 30 miles from the front line, there are really successful local mini-grids that have fueled economic development, that have helped combat humanitarian crises. It can be used to pump drinking water. It can be used to power medical facilities and schools. So I think this approach allows donors to operate much sooner and then saves the money in the longer term. Your study, though, found that in most cases, 
renewables wouldn't work. As I read your study, you had four case studies, and three of them did not seem especially auspicious for renewables. As a donor looks at the opportunity for renewables, when do renewables work the best? And what kinds of factors mean they're unlikely to work? Part of this comes down to economics, and part of this comes down to the social contract. So on the economic side, if the governments are able to fund very generous fuel and energy subsidies, then renewables will always be more expensive. So in places like Iraq and Libya, where the government spends vast amounts of money on subsidizing fuel and energy for its people, then it's much less cost competitive for renewables because it's cheaper to operate the local diesel-based generators that I mentioned. The other piece of this is the social contract. I spoke to Iraqis in Baghdad who said to me, we live in a country with the fifth largest proven oil reserves in the world. Why on earth should we have to invest in renewable energy when the government has all of this that it should be providing for us? And so part of this is about what people expect from their governments and when they feel like it's in their interest to invest at the individual level, at the community level, to compensate for government services. Now, often conflicts actually shift these, these patterns, though. So in Yemen and in Lebanon, crises have forced the government to lift subsidies, which suddenly makes renewables much more economically competitive. And that's why we have seen the massive flourishing of solar panels in particular in Yemen and Lebanon. But I think the other reason why renewables can't work in some cases is these actors that I mentioned earlier who have vested interests in the status quo, particularly political elites who are making a lot of money from the current system, even if or because it is dysfunctional, because it is uneven and forces people to rely on expensive measures, they benefit from this. So when you have these actors who are making huge amounts of money and do not want to see these profits undermined, and they are the ones who are responsible for implementing new policies that could allow for the flourishing of renewables, that's not going to happen. And I think the most extreme cases of that are Iraq and Libya, but also Lebanon has really deeply entrenched interests at the central level where people don't want more accountability, they don't want more competition in the electricity sector. And just one piece of evidence for this is that the Lebanese parliament passed a law in 2002 which called for an independent regulator for the electricity sector. It's now more than 20 years later, and none of the many governments that have taken office since have actually implemented this why? Because they don't want more accountability in the electricity sector. I think certain powerful individuals are very happy with the way things are at the moment, and they don't want to see more competition. And so that's an argument to come in earlier, which you say the smaller and more distributed systems allows you to do, so you don't have these patterns set up in the first place. Exactly. I argue that there is a window of opportunity to act and to set these societies on a pathway of greater environmental sustainability, but also better governance. If you can get in earlier while things are still in flux, before some of these actors have really been able to dig their claws in and entrench their power in the status quo, then that's when you can act. 
And so you said that of the four cases, the only real source of optimism is in Yemen. I would agree that Yemen is a really good example where I believe donors should be looking to fund the much broader uptake of community-scale renewable infrastructure. But I would actually argue that there is a silver lining in Lebanon's current collapse as it relates to electricity in that people are already doing this. And I believe that donors should be trying to highlight these successful community-scale efforts much more. They should be experimenting more with different types of systems to see what works in the local context. And we're seeing sometimes that this is happening. Actually, USAID is funding a project called Anara, which is working at the local level in Lebanon to support municipality level projects and clusters of municipalities. I would love to see other donors as well adopt the same approach to band together and to try to unlock greater amounts of international financing, particularly climate financing is really underutilized in these contexts. And I think they can show people who live in these contexts that a better path is possible and acting earlier spurs local economic development. It spurs job creation. It helps with peace building sometimes between communities that may have otherwise competed for limited access to electricity. And it can set these societies on a much more promising pathway forward. And so even though the challenges are huge and circumstances are really dire, there is actually opportunity amid all of this. And I believe that you can use renewable energy to power recovery, which is the title of the report. So when a donor is looking at a conflict-affected environment, what's the process the donor should go through to decide, is this appropriate for the more conventional approaches to providing electricity? Or should we give Todman's idea a try? <laughs> well, I would argue that my idea does have some recommendations for the central level as well. But essentially what donors should do is try to work out what can they do at the central level, working directly with the government or ruling authorities, and what can they do at the local level. And they need to answer two main questions. What is the capacity of central authorities do they have the ability to enact reforms, to take on big projects? Do they have the human capacity? Are their staff still there or have they been displaced? And the second question is, to what degree do actors, political and economic actors, benefit from the status quo? To what extent are these vested interests in dysfunction entrenched? And I lay out at the end of the report a series of questions that donors should ask. And then I've got a table which lays out four different categories according to these assessments. So if you have a government with a strong capacity and really limited vested interests in the status quo, then this is the ideal situation. In this situation, you can be thinking about advancing legislation that would allow for distributed renewable systems, but also potentially advancing much bigger utility scale systems. You can also work with the government on some repairs to the existing grid that make sense and that would benefit a lot of people. But then on the most restrictive end of the scale, you have a government that actually has a lot of capacity, but very entrenched interests in the status quo. And this is Iraq and Libya from the cases that we looked at. And it is very difficult 
to intervene and to have a positive impact in these places. What I argue is that more can be done to try to shift the culture around renewable energy, highlighting success stories where they exist, working with communities, particularly rural communities, that may benefit from solar-powered irrigation systems and, and whatnot. But ultimately, you shouldn't be putting a lot of funding into these situations because, sadly, actors who seek to cause these efforts to fail, will attack them, will destroy them, will undermine them militarily, legislatively, using whatever tools they have at their ability to ensure the continuity of the status quo. And then on the in-between level, when you have a situation where maybe the government doesn't have much capacity, but also there aren't many vested interests, then that's when you can try and go to the local level, highlight these successful cases, encourage experimentation with different systems, and try to attract funding from other donors and then from the private sector as well, from climate financing, to really scale this up so that you can set societies on a more promising pathway. Will Todman, author of the new report, Powering Recovery, thanks for joining us on Babel. Thanks so much, John. Next, John, Lubna, and I dive into the Libya chapter, which Lubna authored, and how donors should use Will's report to alter their strategies in the Middle East. John and Lubna, thank you for joining me today for this table talk. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks for having us. So, John, we just heard Will really dive into the details of this report and its key findings in each country. But if we zoom out a bit to why he was writing the report in the first place, how would you like to see policymakers, donors, and implementers from across the spectrum really use this report? He wrote the foreword for the report. What do you think the key takeaway for donors is? I think the, the first question is to think, is there an opportunity to do something really differently here? What was interesting about Will's report is he demonstrated that there are times that a radically different approach, which also happens to be more environmentally sensitive, also helps you on the governance side. And when you think about all the complicated situations you have in a conflict-affected environment, thinking about the ways something more environmentally sensitive can help your governance is a really interesting prospect. It's, I think, very hard for a lot of administrators who are thinking, I have to get power to 200,000 people this year to think about doing it in small bits to think about doing it in small projects. And I think there are probably gonna be times when a lot of donors are gonna say, this is a great idea, but not appropriate for now. What's really interesting about distributed solar power in particular is that because you're talking about smaller investments, you can put it in more isolated areas, you have opportunities to have constructive engagement to really move the needle on some of these communities years before you could do it on some of the other projects. And you can start putting in place some of the building blocks of a different kind of electrical system, a different kind of grid. So it seems to me that, that the real promise in, in Will's report is not saying this is how everybody has to do it, but rather shouldn't we always be thinking, is there an opportunity here to do something in a different way, what are some of the advantages of doing this in a really different way? And things are possible because of cost now that were never possible before that will really help us act much more quickly than we ever could before. 
I agree with John. Will's approach was particularly intriguing for me because the focus has also been incredibly on understanding the context instead of just parachuting in with templates and trying to help when help probably won't be sustainable, but also kind of following the lead of local communities, which is something that will really emphasize of local adaptations when it comes to renewable technologies. There are pockets where opportunities are available, where you can actually step in and offer support as a donor to help scale some of these local adaptations, to help alleviate some of the kind of stress that these communities are experiencing. And to talk about one of those pockets, Lubna, as Will said in the interview, you authored the chapter on Libya. So let's dive in a bit on what you found. What were some of your main findings specific to Libya? What's unique about Libya that we couldn't gather from Will's summary of the rest of the report? So Libya is one of those interesting cases where you examine the context and you see all the factors you need for success. So it could possibly be a very easy success story for donors. However, it's a very stubborn context. And the first key finding has to do with how electricity is generated, distributed, and consumed in Libya. And it's through something called the General Electricity Company of Libya. And that company is a state-owned utility that is fully integrated and it's heavily subsidized. In fact, it's subsidized twice, Caleb. Once the fuel is subsidized and then the electricity itself is subsidized. And it's called G-Coal. And why G-Coal is interesting is because it's a Gaddafi legacy in Back in the 70s and 80s, it did help to fully electrify the country. But right now, it's an aging infrastructure. It's complex, highly subsidized. It's a huge monopoly. And the structure is so rigid that you cannot introduce any reforms to the institution. And so, unfortunately... That creates a huge barrier for donors who are hoping to introduce any reform to the electricity sector in the country. Add to that, there is limited capacity when it comes to the electricity system. And what that means is that it's struggling with meeting growing demand because of how subsidized it is. It means people are using more than they actually need. Add to that the issue of tariff collection. So the company is not even able to collect utility bills. So it's not actually generating any revenue to cover a lot of its costs. All of this has taken place within a very unstable political situation. You have a lot of security vacuums. You have a lot of actors and stakeholders who profit from the status quo of the electricity system being near collapse because of the way it's structured and because of its entrenchment and its ties to Libya's overall oil industry. Libya depends heavily on our, on oil revenues. In 2019 or 2020, over 90% of the budget came from our oil revenues. There is no other stream of revenue. So if that sector collapses, if that sector is blocked, everything else comes to a halt, including utilities. So speaking of some of the context that Lubna just gave us for Libya, John, Will's report highlights that there's a window of opportunity, as he said in the interview, that exists immediately following the end of a conflict. As you think about how donors, the U.S. government in particular is what I'm thinking here, are looking at conflicts in the region and making their own calculus about when to go in, 
what are they currently looking for in terms of when to start reconstruction? What are the signs that they're looking for? And how would you like to see Will's report change that calculus? If you're going to put a $200 million plant in, you're going to wait until not only has the fighting stopped, but you really have people who are in control of the territory around the plant. Otherwise, you build a plant and somebody sabotages the plant and you have to put the money back again. Oftentimes, the people who are in control of security are people who are trying to control security and business and politics. And you have people who are, in many cases, necessary, but not always the most savory people you want to have with a large share in government. What Will's paper suggests is that there are opportunities much earlier to create different kinds of patterns, to create stakeholders and, and local governments that are responsive to populations, where this, they're not so attractive for people to control them, but when you have lots and lots of these, you have communities that feel a stake in their own future, communities that feel a stake in their own security, that are able to advance their own security. And decentralization isn't the answer to everything. And it's certainly not the answer to everything in the Middle East. But more decentralization and undermining the ability of warlords to control the post-conflict environment strikes me as a really helpful step to take. You can't take it everywhere. Sometimes there are situations, as Lubna described, where you have a huge company involved and the state is involved and there's so many distortions to the economy and to pricing that you don't have the same opportunities. But there are situations where you do have those opportunities. And I think that the urgent call in Will's paper is look for those opportunities because they can really pay off in, in disproportionate ways. So Lutna, you conducted dozens of interviews for this chapter, but you're also from Libya and you were there both before and after the revolution. So looking at it from your perspective, what did some of the themes that Will highlighted in the paper look like from a Libyan perspective on the ground? Me and my siblings used to joke that we our home is our own state and we should start issuing visas. And that's because we reached a point where we had our own private generator that my father invested so much money in. So we were constantly generating our own electricity because power cuts lasted as long as 16 hours sometimes. And with that came water cups. And so we had someone dig a well for us. So we were generating and pulling our own water as well. So at that point, we weren't depending on the state for anything. People had their own individual kind of states and sovereignties. And it was just, it was exhausting because you get to a point where you walk out on the street, you can smell diesel kind of just lingering like heavy in the air. And you can see the smog because of it, because everyone on our street had some sort of generator. They went from generators that cost as much as $20,000 to very tiny like inverters that were maybe $500 that would just power a cell phone, which is what people needed to go about their day. And there was this constant blare of noise. You can barely hear yourself think. It was so odd to me because I always wondered, well, why are we going out on the streets again? And the general feeling is that, well, A, it's too dangerous because we've seen how these armed militias target human beings who speak up. And B, this is going to be resolved. Why? Because we're an oil-rich country. It doesn't make sense for us to not have electricity because we have the fuel that we need to power it. 
it was a very odd time in my life. But what was odder is the fact that at one point, us Libyans just accepted it as fact. We just lived with it. The frustrating bit about that, like trying to understand the multitude of vested interests in how certain industries or how certain utilities experience so much dysfunction is the fact that right now there are so many players that it's hard to actually put your finger on one point where you can make a huge difference or make the needle move forward. We have two governments at this point, you know, one in the West, which is the government of national unity, UN back, and then you have the House of Representatives in the East that's backed by General Haftar and his military force. And so in these two different factions are fighting over state-owned corporations such as the National Oil Corporation, GCOL, the Libyan Audit Bureau. So as you can see, it's not just vested interest in the dysfunction of the electricity sector. In a lot of ways, the electricity sector seems to be what you would call a casualty because the interest is in the oil, the interest is in those revenues. But because the electricity sector, unfortunately, depends on natural gas and in some instances crude oil to actually power the power stations and generate electricities, every time there are huge conflict around the oil sector, something happens to electricity. If you destabilize oil, you destabilize electricity. If that's destabilized, you cut people's access to water. And if you cut people's access to water, then that is when you begin to see conflict dynamics emerge in, in communities. But that's also taken as an opportunity for some corrupt actors to step in and start creating parallel markets for private electricity. And it's why we see a lot of people going the generation, going the route of privately generated electricity. Now, not everyone can afford that. So that creates also some sort of class hierarchy where you see Libyans who can afford generations and then you see Libyans who can't afford that. And that creates even further socioeconomic issues for them in terms of access to education, access to healthcare, and so on and so forth. I think that's a really good segue to another oil-rich country. The U.S. has spent billions of dollars in Iraq. And Will's report really starkly highlighted the failures of reconstruction there. But large waves of protests since 2019 really haven't moved the needle, changed the status quo. Will noted it's the same in Lebanon. Do you think there's an inflection point that would really cause governments in the region or donors when they're implementing projects and talking with governments to rethink their strategy in the ways that Will argues they should in the countries, as you noted, that might not have much of an opportunity now to build back better, but there might be some areas for reform. Iraq represented an inflection point. The U.S. isn't going to occupy any countries and rebuild them for quite some time to come. And I think that there's a sense that the opportunities that were missed in Iraq are not going to be made up. But there remain conflict-affected environments, whether they're places like Yemen, places like Syria, where the U.S. potentially has a role, where the U.S. or its partners and allies might want to do something or might want to do something differently. Syria, of course, has lots of different zones of control, some of which are more favorably disposed toward working with the United States and others, and some of which the United States is more favorably disposed toward working with. And it seems to me that, that this just should be part of the toolkit. It should be part of how you're thinking about 
what you might do. There are a lot of alternatives that don't involve putting in several hundred million dollars, and they can be really impactful. And again, what's really interesting about Will's report is the way he highlights it's not just about providing electricity, although as you heard from Lubna, electricity matters, but part of it is also what does it do for governance? What does it do to other things that are going on? And that gives you tremendous opportunities. So that's a really good segue into my next question. Will's report is the latest example of Middle East program work in that space that you just described. Space between governance, the environment, and service provision. And as we noted in Sustainable States, it's security as well. Why do you think this line of work is so crucial for where the region's at today? And where do you think the future opportunities for this research are? I think Will's report kind of moves away from your classic securitization of the region, seeing it as problematic, and it really focuses on, well, how do we bring the human back into it? How do we improve the quality of human life in certain contexts? And how do we see the potential to create new opportunities, partnerships? And that's why I really enjoyed working on this, because you're identifying spaces that might be in other people's blind spot and telling them that this exists and this is where you can actually have the most positive and helpful impact on the ground, whether it be through partnering with regional governments, international organizations, or civil society organizations. This is all highlighted, and it's about how do we work together to address challenges and build trust. I think that a think tank community, which has 16 reports on a single topic, isn't really doing what it should be doing. I think a think tank community that is looking at areas that aren't covered, that's finding opportunities, that's linking things, that's framing things that people haven't thought to frame of, that's what think tanks should be doing. What I find really exciting about this work is that it, it talks about things that not only think tanks haven't talked about, but that other people haven't talked about. And when you talk to people in the implementing side, whether they're on the electricity side, whether they're on the security side, whether on the economic development side, they say, that's really interesting. I can see how, how I can go from where I am to incorporating that perspective and being in a better place. I think narrowly looking at security issues doesn't resolve security issues doesn't serve U.S. interests, doesn't serve interests of people in the region. Finding different avenues in, finding different ways to link and frame things, finding different tools that governments both in the region and outside the government can use. I think that's what our, the think tank community should be doing, not because we shouldn't be doing things that are consequential, but the avenue toward doing things that are consequential isn't always the most obvious way in. And the most consequential things you might do are things that don't initially seem consequential to start with. But when you start to see the, the, the virtuous circles that you build, when you start to change the behaviors, when you start to create possibilities, they develop their own momentum. And it's, it's understanding where are those open spaces? How do you fill them? How do, you, how do you tell people not what they already know and they know what the range of opinions are? How do you persuade people that things they don't know could be really consequential, affecting things they already know they care about? I think that's a place that think tanks have to be a lot better at approaching. And I'm really delighted that, that folks on my team are always looking 
for ways to identify those areas, not what every other think tank is doing, but what think tanks should be doing, but don't quite realize it yet. John and Lubna, you've given us a lot to think about. The report, again, is Power and Recovery, Reform, Reconstruction, and Renewables in Conflict-Affected States in the Arab World. And John and Lubna, thank you for joining me today to talk about it. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.